0: Probably a lot of us remember the story from uh, 2015. On February 15th, ISIS militants beheaded 21 orange-clad Coptic Christians on a Libyan beach. And this picture that you see behind me from this book that now has been written about that event that actually traces the lives of these 21 before this happened is is an image of the persecuted church that many of us recognize today. The word martyr actually means witness. That's what the term martyr means. And from the very beginning of the church, this is precisely how many Christians witnessed to their faith. They were martyrs, witnesses, by the laying down of their very life. In the book of Acts that we've been studying, we already read about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was killed within the first few years of the birth of the church. And then after that, there is a number of unnamed people in the book of Acts that were persecuted and martyred. Right after the killing of Stephen, we read in Acts 8, a great wave of persecution began that day after the killing of Stephen, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. By the time we get to Acts 12, we see persecution towards Christians not only being pushed by Jewish religious leaders, but we see persecution towards Christians now also being pushed by the Roman government. And by Acts chapter 12, we have our second named martyr. There have been a number of others that are unnamed, but we have our second named martyr. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, about that time King Herod, Herod Agrippa, began to persecute some of the believers in the church. He had the apostle James, that is John's brother, and also one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, He then arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebrations. He then imprisoned Peter, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for the public, to have a public trial of Peter after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed earnestly for him. It's often the strategy of governments to scapegoat a certain type of people to prop themselves up and to try to gain popularity. We can think of many stories like that in history. Um, Whether it's Germans against the Jews or Americans against the Mexicans. Bosnians against the Serbians, the Hutus against the Tutsis or even religiously Muslims against the Hindus or Christians against the Muslims. Many times Christian, non-Christian or leaders or governments or kings have labeled certain other people as a scapegoat to prop up their own popularity, to cause a movement, uh, for people to support them. Here, too, we see that King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. And then the second named martyr, I said, was mentioned. James, John's brother, is beheaded. And then look what it says. When Herod saw how much this pleased the people, he then arrested Jesus' disciple, Peter. He saw that By killing James, he was in some ways beginning to encourage a a certain populist movement. And in order to continue to prop up his own popularity, he then pursued Peter. And it says that... He didn't kill Peter right away, but instead he arrested Peter, put him in prison. He wanted to wait until after the Passover because he wanted to make sure that the killing of Peter was a public demonstration. He didn't want Peter just killed in some back alley somewhere. Again, he was motivated by trying to push his popularity. And what better way to do that than taking Jesus' chief apostle... And having some kind of big celebration, some big movement where everybody could come together and they could see Peter killed. And so he puts them in prison. And when we read, it may seem a bit overboard in regards to what Herod did in the guard he put for Peter in prison. It says that he put four squads Of four soldiers each, that's 16 people, guarding Peter. And if you read the next couple of verses, it even says that two of the guards were chained right to Peter. So he had two guys chained to Peter, and then a number of other ones, 14 other soldiers, all guarding Peter. Why such a guard on Peter? Well, all you have to do is go back a little bit earlier in the book of Acts, and you may remember Acts 5. Peter was put in jail in Acts 5 as well, and somehow Peter escaped. Somehow Peter got out of prison and was preaching to the crowds the next day. And so obviously Herod does not want this to happen again. And so what Herod decides is to make sure nobody is going to let this guy escape. Acts 12, then 6 to 19, describes, guess what? Peter escapes from prison again. Even with 16 guys guarding him, he escapes from prison. And I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell the story. I encourage you to read it later on today because the story of Peter's second escape from prison is quite humorous. It's almost like kind of halfway through the book of Acts, Luke decides, even in the midst of some of the terrible things that are happening with the persecution, to give us a little bit of comic relief about how God is working in different situations. So, what we read is Peter sleeping in prison. He's chained to two guards. And as he's sleeping, a bright angel appears in prison. But somehow this doesn't wake Peter up. It's kind of interesting, too, that Peter's able to sleep so well in prison. He's maybe learned in some ways to trust in the Lord. He's just resting to such an extent that even when this bright light, this bright angel appears in prison, Peter seems so relaxed that we read, which I find quite hilarious, in verse 7, that the angel struck Peter on the side to wake him up. And said, quick, get up. I mean, that's a deep sleep. The angel actually had to hit him and tell Peter to get up. And then as soon as Peter gets up, it says the chains just miraculously fell off his wrists. And then the angel tells Peter to follow him. And as Peter follows this angel, and he follows the angel past every single one of the guards that's guarding him we read that as Peter followed the angel, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize that this was actually happening. So that means that Peter was sleeping so deeply that even after this angel hit him and told him to wake up, and Peter wakes up and starts following this angel, even then Peter thinks he's still sleeping. Or that this is some kind of vision. He doesn't actually think that he's actually walking out of prison. He thinks that he is just dreaming or just having a vision that he's leaving prison. And after he dreams this, and as he continues to dream this, this maybe fun escape room type of uh, uh, dilemma that he's maybe thinking about, dreaming about, Peter dreams that he goes all the way to leaving the prison... And comes to the city gates, and then the text says the city gates just miraculously open, maybe like some of those doors on the Death Star in Star Wars that just you know he comes up, the doors just open up, and then Peter dreams, or he thinks he's dreaming, or he thinks he's having a vision that he now starts walking down an empty street in the middle of the night, and then suddenly, the angel disappears. And he's standing there in the middle of the street. It's the middle of the night. There's nobody around. It's dark. And then we read, Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me. And Peter doesn't realize that this actually has happened to him until he's standing in the middle of the street. I mean, think about this. This would be like the, a major sleepwalking episode. You're lying down, you're sleeping, and then you have a dream or you think you're having a dream of walking, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, I'm in the middle of Vancouver on an empty street at two in the morning. And then you're like, wait a minute, I didn't just dream that I ended up here in the middle of Vancouver at two, I actually walked here, I actually ended up here. And so he finally comes to his senses. Peter stands on this deserted street. he wakes up, he realizes uh, that he he is actually awake the whole time or has had some kind of extreme sleepwalking case, whatever happened to him somehow he's like, "Yeah, I really am here i'm i'm really sure that at this point Peter is." quite happy that he dreamed. The text said that when the angel smacked him and said, get up, put on your clothes, I'm sure Peter at this point said, I'm really glad I dreamt that I put my clothes on. Or or, or I actually put my clothes on. Um, That that happened, because you don't want to be caught in that situation without your clothes on. And so there he is. But guess what? The story gets even funnier. Because now that he wakes up, or now that he realizes that he's been awake the whole time, we read that While Peter was in prison, the church was praying earnestly for him. And so as he's standing in the middle of the street, he realizes that, okay, I I actually didn't have VR goggles on. This wasn't virtual reality. I, I really am here. So the most logical thing to do is probably to go to the church or to the house where the people are praying for me. I mean That would seem to be a logical place to go in the middle of the night. And so that's exactly what he does. He finds the house where the people are praying for him. He knocks on the door. And when he does, a servant girl by the name of Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice as he's knocking on the door and saying, hey, let me in. And in verse 14, it says, she, Rhoda, was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. I mean, could you imagine? Peter's like, hello, let me in. And she's so excited that Peter's there that she goes and tells everybody. Now, you would think that there were certain things that you could interrupt the prayer meeting over. You'd think there's some things that no matter how earnestly you're praying, it's okay to stop praying. And you'd think that Praying for Peter in prison and then having him show up at the door would be something you could stop praying about. But instead of listening to the servant girl Rhoda and checking it out, the people in the prayer meeting start having a theological debate about how God answers prayer or whether he answers prayer or how he answers prayer. And so they begin questioning. As she comes in and says, hey, stop your praying. Stop your praying. Peter's at the door. One of them says, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Even when she keeps persisting and says, no, I know his voice. I know it's... Peter. Another one says, no, no, it must be Peter's angel. Here they start getting into even some bad theology. And I'm thinking to myself, why doesn't somebody just go check the door? All this time that Peter's banging on the door, and Rhoda's saying Peter's at the door, the guy you've been praying about, they're sitting around debating on whether or not it really is Peter, whether or not she's a crazy woman, whether or not Peter has an angel that maybe has the same voice of Peter, and they keep on debating. And it's so funny that in verse 16 it says, meanwhile, as all of this goes on, Peter keeps knocking. He's banging and banging and banging on the door, and they keep. Debating this. Somebody must have finally got annoyed at all the banging on the door. Maybe somebody said, Would somebody go and let Peter's angel in? So we can keep talking about this and get back to our praying. Could somebody just go and open the door? And then when they do, verse 16 says, When they finally, it even puts that word in there, finally, when they finally opened the door and saw Peter, not his angel. They were amazed. Whoa. It's actually Peter. The guy we've been praying about. Peter then tells them all about his dream or vision. Which he realizes wasn't a dream and wasn't a vision. And how God had delivered him from prison. And now he's here with them. The next morning. Things don't go so well for for Herod's soldiers. 16 guys that were guarding him. I always kind of feel bad for these guys a little bit. I mean, they're just doing their job, and there's actually nothing you can really do when God jailbreaks you out. And uh, obviously, after Herod investigates everything, from Herod's perspective, he probably thinks this is some kind of inside job. I mean, how else do you get a guy out of jail chained to two other people with all those guards? It must have been some kind of inside job. Herod Probably thought something like that, and so what it says is that he had all 16 guards sentenced to death. The interesting thing is that stories like Peter's don't just happen in the Bible, stories like Peter have happened throughout church history. Just about a hundred years ago, a similar instance occurred to a strange. Indian Christian by the name of Sundar Singh. He, in the early 1900s, had something quite interesting happen to them. He was born in 1889, he was raised a Sikh, and Sundar went through a crisis of faith around 14, 16 years of age. And he began wondering who the real God was. At the age of 16, he resolved to kill himself, and yet before he did that, he decided to ask whoever the true God was to appear to him, or he was going to throw himself in front of a train. I don't recommend that kind of challenge to put before God, but this is what this guy did. That night, he had a vision of Jesus. Sunder then told his father after this vision that he was converting to Christ and becoming a missionary, which caused his father to completely reject him. Sunder was thrown out of his family. His brothers tried numerous times to poison him unsuccessfully. Uh, Many people in the surrounding village frequently threw poisonous snakes into his house and into his room to try also to kill him. On one missionary journey, a trip to Tibet, the chief lama in Tibet ordered Sander after he was preaching to the crowds on the street to be thrown into a dry well and left to die. And in this dry well, there were the, the bones and the rotting flesh of other people that had been thrown into this well for various misdeeds that they had done. To make sure that Sundar wouldn't get out of this, he put a lid on the well and locked it so that there was no way that he would possibly be able to climb out of this well or for anybody to be able to open the lid and rescue him. On the third night, so you think about how long this is, sitting in this putrid environment. On the third night, as Sunder was crying out to God in prayer, He heard someone unlocking the lid of the well, and then a a rope was lowered, and he heard a voice that told him to take hold of the rope. He then took hold of the rope, and by hanging on and climbing up the rope as much as he could with the strength that he had left, and the other Person or whatever was on the other side pulling him up. He then got out of the well, saw the lid be put back onto the well, and then when he looked around for his rescuer to give thanks to him, he couldn't find anyone anywhere. He never did find out who this rescuer was. And as some of these crazy Christians do, when the next morning came, Sunday decided to return to the city and resume preaching in the streets, and was brought before the Lama who was demanding an explanation for how he got out of the well. Particularly, and this is the really strange part of the story, because the only key to open the well was owned by the Lama himself and kept on his very underwear, how did he get out? It's a very similar story to the Peter story. Now, we love hearing these stories. They're, they're great stories to hear. The story of Peter or the story of Sundar and how God worked in these situations for these people to be rescued, even to the point of it being somewhat unexplainable. For many people, it proves that God really is in control. And yet, on February 15th, 2015, ISIS militants beheaded 21 orange-clad Coptic Christians on a Libyan beach. And yet, we can't forget that right before this wonderful story in Acts 12 about Peter escaping from prison... Right before it is the story of Herod beheading John, or or James, the brother of John. And I'm sure the church gathered and prayed for James just as much as they prayed for Peter. Which raises the question why was James killed and Peter rescued? Why were these 21 Coptic Christians martyred and Sundar Singh spared and pulled out of the well? And let's be honest, if we do the math, for every Peter who is spared, as we saw even in the offering video that was played, thousands and thousands of Christians like James... Are killed. Mathematically, probability wise, if you are in a situation where you are going to have to face possibly dying for your faith, you've probably got a 98% chance that you're going to die for your faith. The stories of Peter being spared is not the norm, it does happen. But it's not the norm. The norm is James, who was beheaded. The norm is the 21 Coptic Christians. And that should cause us to rethink some of our simplistic solutions that God sparing Peter's life proves that God's in control. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I had somebody uh, tell me, uh, somebody that uh, a number of years back was spared from cancer. They were able to get to the doctor, and the cancer was discovered early enough that they were able to have treatments, and now they are cancer-free. And they were telling me this story, and they were telling me, you know what, the fact that the the doctor discovered it so early, and I went to the doctor so early, and the fact that, that I was spared from this just proves to me that God is in control. Now, obviously, in those particular situations, I have to be somewhat pastoral, You have to wear your pastor hat and theologian hat at different times. Although those two shouldn't contradict each other. But there's a certain time to say things and a certain time not to. And so I kind of just listened to the story. And it's great that that's what happened in that situation. But I find it troubling, the thinking, the conclusion that that proves that God's in control. Because at the same time, my father-in-law's cancer was not caught until three days before he died. Everybody didn't know what was going on with him. We had thought all kinds of weird things, even to the point where uh, people thought it was uh, an extreme case of depression and mental health issues, and we're trying to treat him that way. And then about three days before he died, then they discovered that he had lung cancer and died. And so the conclusion, if you go with that logic, is does that mean that God was not in control in that situation? Is God only in control When it works out well, is God not in control? When it doesn't work out well? That kind of theology will be like building your faith on sand, not on a rock. Because we have to face the fact that James does get his head cut off. Was God not in control? for the first five chapters of Acts 12, and then only after when Peter was rescued, then all of a sudden God is like, oh, I better do something here. When the 21 Coptic Christians had their throats slit on the Libyan beach, was God in control or not? And this is not theological hair-splitting. The difference between this is... ...between building a shaky faith on the sand of sentimentality and superstition... ...and building a robust faith on the rock of reality. And it all comes down to a proper understanding of who God is. Who is this God? And if we have a better understanding of who he is and his character... It doesn't make things easier, but it teaches us what it means to have faith in this God, not faith in our wishful thinking. See, since the Enlightenment, Western culture predominantly operates under a very dualistic way of thinking that takes the physical world, which would be, they would say, the world of science, and completely separates it from the spiritual world, which would be, they would say, in the realm of religion. As if these two worlds are completely apart from one another. This, in fact, so predominates our culture that it even affects us as Christians in the way we see life and sometimes the way we even live life. So that, for many of us, our daily lives we live them even though we say we believe in God, and we do, but we essentially live our daily lives as if God doesn't really involve himself very much. The the God is up in heaven, and he maybe started things off in kind of a deistic way. He started things off, but he's relatively uninvolved. He set up Sort of the laws of nature. Now those just sort of run on their own. God is pretty much uninvolved. Every once in a while, God puts his finger in. Like when he rescues Peter. Every once in a while, God puts a finger in over here. And decides to heal this one person of cancer. So we look at and we even flock to and we run to the miracles and the miraculous. Because for us, that's where God is doing stuff. Everything else is just science and mathematics and the laws of nature, uh, and and, and God once in a while shows up in these miraculous ways. That's a very enlightenment way of thinking, a very uh, separating of the spiritual and the physical. It is completely contrary to a biblical worldview. It is completely contrary to the way the Hebrews thought of God. And this arm's length view of God, which kind of keeps him at a distance, in many ways is merely our attempt to keep things more comfortable for us. It's also why, because we want to keep things more comfortable, we rarely get angry with God the way the writers of the Bible get angry at God, like in the Psalms and in other places. Because as soon as you don't think in this dichotomistic way, it raises actually many difficult problems. See, the God revealed in Scripture is shockingly close and defies our ways of categorizing Him that He does these things over here and He doesn't do these things over here. The biblical God is as in control... When Peter is rescued, as when James gets his head chopped off. He's just as much in control in both situations. And, even more uncomfortable, the biblical God doesn't feel the need to explain himself. Although he's very open to us telling God how we feel about the way he's running things. Even though he might not change anything. He's very open and saying, yeah, you can share all this with me as much as you want. When Paul talks about God, Paul says that Christ is the cosmic glue or the energy that holds everything together in Colossians 1. Not only did God through Christ create everything, but he sustains everything through Christ. Everything lives and moves and has its being in and in participation of who God is. God manages every event in a Christian's experience so that it works out for that person's eventual good. Jesus said that every hair on our head is numbered and that not a sparrow falls to the ground. Note this. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, meaning dies, apart from God's will. Matthew 10. Americans' greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, reminded his congregation that not an atom, not a single atom, or we might say subatomic particle, moves apart from God's sovereign direction. Richard Niebuhr wrote that the God to whom Jesus points is not the commander who gives laws. The God to whom Jesus points is the doer of every small and mighty deed. The creator of the sparrows who clothes the lilies. God is the ultimate giver. And hear this. This is I don't know the words to, this, to struggle with this. God is the ultimate giver of blindness and of sight. I mean, how do you not struggle with that? He's the ruler who rules, whose rule is hidden in the manifest activities of plural agencies, but yet in a way visible to those who know how to interpret the signs of the time. Even God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said these words... Isaiah 45, all the world, from east to west, will know there is no other God but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I create the light, and I make the darkness. I, the Lord God, send good times, and I, the Lord God, send bad times. I am the Lord, I am the one who does these things. What do you do with that kind of stuff? I send the good times, I even send the bad times. Paul also quotes God's words in Romans, who says, God speaking, who are you mere human being to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars of, out of clay, does he have a right to u- doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? W- what do you do with that? Who are you to say to God that if God wants to make you in such a way to use you to shine like a beautiful decoration, that's God's will. If God wants to create you and make you to be someone where the garbage gets thrown, that's God's prerogative. I hate passages like this. They force me to be more of a Calvinist that I don't want to be. But it's there, it's in scripture, and we have to acknowledge it. God is in ultimate control. It is so jarring to the freedom that I want to think that I have. And yet, I have as much life outside of God as my fish in my fish tank have life outside of the water in the fish tank. If my fish decide one day, I want to be free. I want to be free from the water that's all around me. They're going to flop around for a few seconds and die. There's no such existence. There's no existence outside of God. God is over everything, not just the good things. God is even over the bad things. God is present, at least indirectly, and even all the bad things that happen. So rather than thinking that God is in control when good things work out, a faith, a maturing faith, has to continually journey towards the faith of Job, who said, should we receive good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? As Job was struggling with all the things that were afflicted upon him, and his wife was saying, curse God and die. I mean, why serve this God? If he's not going to do good stuff for you, if God's not going to serve you, Job, to give you all the good things in life, well, then just spit in his face. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. If I'm going to receive the good things from God, and he's God and I'm not... He's not there to serve me. I'm there to serve Him. If I'm going to receive the good things from the hand of God, that means I also need to be willing to receive the bad things from the hand of God. Because He's in control. I need to be able to embrace even the sickness, the loss, the death. People have debated over whether Sundar Singh was was rescued by an angel or a human. Who was it that pulled him out of that well? Was it an angel? Was it a human? Some have even debated this in Peter's case. It may seem obvious that Luke uh, says it's an angel, but others have said, well, maybe Luke was protecting the identity of the insider who was a man of faith that actually got Peter out of prison. Either way, God got him out of prison. Again, these are modern debates that want to separate the physical and spiritual world. Was it a human? Was Was it an angel? In other words, was it God or was it just dumb luck? But as I said earlier, the way the Hebrews saw reality was that God was always the primary source of everything and uses secondary sources whether those secondary sources are angels or humans it's god ultimately who is working the way the hebrews saw it is that if that their armies were defeated in battle it was god who defeated them not the generals the way the hebrews saw it is that if their crops failed or if their crops prospered it was because god did it not ultimately Because of the drought or the rain. God used drought and rain as secondary causes. But it was God's doing. In the same way, if an aspirin cures my headache. The truth, according to a biblical Hebrew way of looking at it. It's that God cured my headache. And he chose to do so through an aspirin. This is the way the Bible teaches reality. It's also the way that we see Acts 12 concluding also. See, at the end of Acts 12, Herod Agrippa, the killer of James and the failed killer of Peter, stands before a crowd. And we read this of Herod Agrippa as he stands before this crowd in verse 21. It says, At an appointed, um, and at, at an appointed time that Herod was granted, The day arrived and Herod put on his royal robes. He sat on the throne and he made a speech to the crowd. The people gave him a great ovation shouting, it is the voice of God, not of a man. I mean, obviously Herod Agrippa was a a good speaker and, and people were... this this is a voice of one of the gods not of a man and then it says instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. Even there see the ability that he had to be such a great orator was because of God not something that he just had in and himself but he did not give glory to God and so because he did not give glory to God an angel of the Lord struck Herod so he was consumed with worms and he died. And so the question is, did Herod die because he was struck by an angel of God or did Herod die because he ended up getting worms? And the answer is yes. That's why Herod died. See, the Bible doesn't have this dichotomy. Of either it was God through an angel. Or it was just natural processes of science. And through some kind of disease of worms. God rules and God works through angels and through worms. And often he does so to such an extent. That sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. That it's both. And God rescues persecuted Christians through angels and through humans. And sometimes He does it to such an extent that it's hard to tell the difference. Was that an angel or was that a human that just rescued me? In the same way, God allows His people to be killed, God allows His people to suffer. And God raises up kings and God takes kings out. That is a faith that knows that God's in control. Even in loss, I cling to my faith that in the good and the bad, God's up to the good for his creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for those that have gone before us. We thank you for those around the world today that live in some very tough situations, and have died and have lost loved ones because of their faith. God, we pray that you help our persecuted brethren stand strong in the faith. And we pray, God, that the robustness of their faith will encourage us and strengthen us to be faithful to you, God, not only when blessings come, but even when you seem so distant. Should we accept good from God and not bad? Lord, you are in control. We submit to you in the good and in the bad. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in Christ.